Well, thank you for leading us in worship this morning. It's good to be with all of you, and I'm excited to open the Word of God and uh, be broadcast. Uh, broadcasting the Word is really the definition of preaching, and so we're just doing what is the most natural thing to do in a time of crisis, a time of uh, world pandemic. We need to hear the Word of God. It needs to be out there, and so I'm hoping that it reaches not only our church congregation, but also uh, visitors, guests, or anyone that just happened to uh, click on and are hearing the Word of God. It's powerful. It's important. It's important for us to be submissive to governing authorities, and it's important for us to um, protect others and wisdom from sickness, from virus spread. And uh, in God's providence, this is what the Lord has given to us. This is in the spirit and tradition of what I would call open-air preaching. It's open and it's in the airwaves and we have a free country to send the word of God out in this way and we need it in this, these days. It brings me back to the first great awakening during the 1700s where you had George Whitfield and you had uh, John Wesley who were circuit preachers. They were horseback riding itinerant Preachers who would go from town to town or colony to colony and they would uh, preach in the fields and they were doing it uh, a bit in a soft rebellion against the organized church of England. They were trained there. Uh, they were graduates of Ivy League schools. They had the credibility as preachers. They had the depth. They weren't um, freewheeling as preachers. But they didn't agree with uh, the way that it was organized and they, they didn't uh, comply with, uh, with licensure. And so they traveled to the fields. First in England, they went to gravel towns where coal miners would come out and hear preaching, gospel preaching to give hope. And it was said that the coal on the faces of the miners would, would be streaked with tears because they would be hearing truth. And it was the word going to the commoners, those who couldn't attend uh, church, but they could hear open air preaching. And then when, uh, when America was being born, uh, basically they came over um, they crossed the pond and began to preach to the colonists and they would preach uh, to broad crowds in strategic ways. Sometimes 20,000 people, 30,000 people would gather. Benjamin Franklin is said to have gathered under Whitfield's preaching several times. He said, I didn't believe it, but I knew he didn't. So I wanted to hear it. It was so compelling. And they would use strategic um, setups uh, where they'd be around water or have a sound reverberating off of walls and they would sort of pull out a makeshift pulpit and preach. And so in the same spirit of submission and freedom, we want to preach, even if it's a bit of an odd way, an odd means for you to hear truth. I want you to be encouraged. We need the word of God and truth to go out because as we know, our world has changed virtually overnight. Um, at Christmas time, I guarantee you, most of us were not prognosticating this level of um, isolation, this level of difference in our economy, our world economy, and our national economy is basically on lockdown right now. We're having to evaluate ourselves. We're having to evaluate what we have and look at resources and look at family and look at friends and look at people whose uh, immune systems are perhaps at risk or um, the elderly. 
and we pray and we seek the Lord and we ask God's grace uh, through this time. We ask it to end, but we also acknowledge because we have good doctrine. We understand that God is in control. Nevertheless, God has been in control of all tragedies, all events, all trials, both big and small. And small. The question right now that I want to ask you from Hebrews chapter 12, which is just in the natural flow of our expositional study. And the question I'm asking is really answered in the paragraph that we're going to look at together this morning. And that is, how you doing? How are you doing spiritually? How is your Christian walk? We're called to be marathoners. We're called to race a marathon, which is a long distance, hard endurance run as believers. Wherever you are in terms of your evaluation, we need to examine ourselves and say, how am I doing spiritually? Am I continuing on or am I being tempted to give up and to give up on God? Are you tempted to say, I I don't know if God loves me anymore? I'm tempted perhaps to say, I don't know why God is doing this and it makes no sense to me. How can something like this be for my good? Is God punishing me for something that I have done that I need to get right? Perhaps those are the questions that come up in your mind. And I would just say it's the idea of Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 3. It's the idea of growing weary. At the end of the verse, it says you can grow weary or become faint-hearted. Grow weary or become faint-hearted. That literally means to collapse. And the idea is collapsing before the finish line. You're running. You want to keep going. But it gets so hard and these tempting questions come up at such a level that you basically want to just throw your hands up and give up on God. You want to give up. You want to say, I'm done. I'm done trying to live the Christian life. I'm done trying to pursue holiness. I don't want it. What's the point of holiness? What's the point of being right with God when things are getting so bad? Well, Hebrews 12 is saying under pressure, under trial, under what is called in this section, fatherly discipline, training, we aren't supposed to stop running. We're supposed to keep going. We're supposed to have an idea from the text why God is doing what he's doing in our lives. And it's amazing to me that out of all the places we could be in scripture, in the regular normative exercise of expository preaching, we're here because God has us here. He has us in Hebrews 12 and he has us hearing a word from him in light of something that is a really hard time in our world. We don't really have a clear end state for when this is going to be over. It's like a nightmare that we want to wake up from, right? But at the same time, we can be tracing our path to Hebrews 12 and what God wants us to learn. We of all people need to be learners right now so that we can help others. The empty heart that feels like a vacuum needs to be filled with God's truth with God's mind. So we don't want to, verse 3 of Hebrews 12, collapse before the finish line. Last week I taught through 
Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 3, but if you go further, 3 and 4, it basically is saying a banner theme. You're always going to be fighting a particular sin. Things are probably, no doubt, bubbling to the surface right now, and you're going, this is my besetting sin. Oh, it's back again. Life has gotten hard, and now I have a sin i got to fight even harder. i got something i got to deal with that's surfacing and resurfacing. Temptations that I thought were done are back again. And God can use something like this for us to repent and take time to repent and fight a particular sin. The second thing I emphasized last week is you will also always be surviving a particularly hard circumstance. And that's found in verses 5 through 11. We covered verses 5 through 9 last week under the theme of surviving a particular circumstance. And I want to pick back up with verses 10 and 11 to complete that thought. You're always going to be going through something hard. We will not always, Lord willing, be going through something like this that's hard. But we will always be going through something. We'll end this chapter and then turn the page and something else will happen. Perhaps something very specific to your life or your family that you've got to deal with. And I'm sure you're dealing with things not only in terms of the macro pressure, but also the micro pressure, things that are going on in our hearts, in our lives that are difficult, that we need to deal with. What are these things? Well, look at verse 10. It says, for they, these are the natural parents that we have. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good for our good, that we may share his holiness. So here the text is comparing the short brevity of life, in particular our childhood, where we are under parents who are targeting us and disciplining us and training us in ways that can help us. And the comparison to what they did and God did is really a comparison that's natural, but it's no comparison at all. Because as parents, they briefly discipline us. It's for a short time. It has a brief time span. And it it was what seemed best to them. If you're a parent or you were parented, you recognize that parents have strengths and weaknesses. Aggressive parents uh, perhaps are more controlling. Passive parents are more reclusive. They're not going to get it right every time. But this comparison is made to wake us up to the reality that we have the ultimate parent. We have a perfect parent who is helping us and who disciplines us. That word discipline, again, is paideia, which sometimes is talking in terms of something we do wrong, where God chastens us, and that's mentioned here in the earlier text. But oftentimes, paideia is talking about training. God is like a coach who helps us specifically and brings up specific trials and circumstances to squeeze you, to train you, to push you, to react, to respond. And as has been prayed earlier, he's got our attention, does he not? We have to respond. We have to know that God is working in our lives and it's for our good. The word good here is sum pharon, which means to bring everything together. It's the God is working all things together for the good. He's bringing things together in your life. Things perhaps you don't want to deal with. Things that you've not wanted to deal with. Things that you've wanted to ignore and forget about altogether. Perhaps there are things where you are 
that aggressive person again, who's just trying to power through your Christian life in your own strength and your own flesh and say, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And God is going, no, 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 I'm going to take away some of your strength right now. I'm going to decentralize things from what you thought was so powerful in your life where you have to literally be dependent upon me. You have to trust me. That's what God is doing in our lives. He would be doing that in our life even if we didn't have this COVID-19 virus right now. It would be something else. And the issue is this. Your growth will be determined and dependent upon whether or not you receive and accept God's discipline or reject God's discipline. Receiving God's discipline is growing in holiness. Rejecting God's discipline is basically giving up, saying, I don't care to be holy during the trial. I don't care for it to help me. I don't care what you think about my life. I don't care that you want me to deal with this particular sin in my life. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to just collapse instead of run. And so God wants us to come with a posture of softness and to say, I want to run the race. I'm accepting and receiving the hard circumstance. That's the end of verse 10, that we may share his holiness, that we may receive what God is doing in our lives as we run the marathon race. That's what the word share literally means. Metalabane, it's to share with God in this. You're receiving it saying, God, it's hard. I don't like it. I don't like my situation, but I'm receiving it so that I can be holy. It's holiness that is God's perfecting worth work in your life as you are on a path towards heaven. Holiness is the word hagiadzo. It's, it's synonymous to the translated word in your Bible for sanctification. You are being sanctified all the way to heaven, set apart more and more from sin, and more and more becoming like Christ Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? You have to take your attitude and humble yourself before the Lord and say, I want to keep running the marathon. I don't want to get up, but I'm going to get up. Believers get up. Unbelievers will run for a short time and they will fall down and they will collapse and they will not get up. The point of Hebrews is that believers run the race and they run all the way to heaven. They do. They see higher purposes. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It does. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Clear conscience, an ordered life, stuff's coming together. It's starting to make sense. You're running the race and you go, this is hard. I'm dealing with my sin. I'm repenting. I'm confessing and I'm running and I'm having what is described here as peace. Remember I said last week that holiness, your holiness is not an end in and of itself. We're not just trying to strive for perfectionism. We're not trying to just be holy for holy sake, holiness sake. God is holy. God is our standard. We're trying to be like him in this life, even though we're sinners. And God is refining us and growing us and growing you through what's hard so that you can be like Jesus. The goal is to be like Jesus and to be like Jesus all the way up to the finish line where we go into 
heaven. That's what it means to be holy as God is holy. And we're being holy, made holy through hard circumstances. And this holiness is worked out through our acceptance of God's work in our lives. Look at verse 6 again. I, I just can't help but reflect back to that phrase. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You know why he disciplines you? You know why it's hard in your life? He loves you. He loves you. He loves you more than you think you need to be loved. <laughs> Perhaps you go like, I love me just like I am. And I loved my circumstances and I loved my life just the way it was. And so God, I don't know if I want you to love me like you're loving me right now, but he loves you more than all of that. He wants things for you. He wants joy in your life. He wants you to have this peace, this yield of peace in your heart as you grow, as you let go of a sin, as you would endure and embrace a hard circumstance so that God can make you more and more like him on the road to heaven. He wants this fellowship in our lives. So why would we do it? Why would we grow? Why would we get up again? Proverbs 24, 16, the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. You keep getting up because you're a real Christian. You have a new heart. Your new heart picks you up off the pavement. You want to do this like a parent wanting to provide for his child or a soldier who's willing to lay down his life or sacrifice himself for the good of others and the good of his country. We have a new heart. We have a goal that we press towards, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. We are like Moses who considers reproach with Christ as greater wealth. Our new hearts compel us to this path. Hebrews 12, though, beginning in verse 11, I'm sorry, 12, picks up on this concept of persevering in the faith and it brings a strong warning. Now, even though your new heart wants to get up and run and keep running, you know, like I know, that our hearts lie to us. Our hearts become depressed. Our hearts become despondent in days of isolation. Perhaps you're, you're huddled in fear. And we need to be warned away from that. And so in one sense, our motivation is to go and drive forward because we have a new heart. And we want holiness and we want the Lord to work in our lives. But in another sense, we need to be warned from laying down and staying down on the ground. We need to move forward. And so these next few verses are applications for the Christian life. How do you, how do you run from compromise? If you're taking notes, that's kind of the banner idea, running from compromise, how do you get up rather than staying down? Staying down is a moral choice that will lead you ultimately to compromise. And Hebrews again and again is addressing believers, but understanding that within the flock, there are the wheat and the tares. There are, there are the haves and the have-nots. There are the real regenerate and the people who think that they are regenerate and saved and really are not. You have saved and unsaved people in the open air venues that I'm preaching and so this is an opportunity for you to look inside and say, do I want to get up? Do I want to keep running? And why and why not? Because the ver these verses teach us how to run from compromise. Listen as I read 
verse 12. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weakness, weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. First point is run again. I'm using all R's. I might have said, you know, raise up or rise up. Run again. Need to run again. The assumption here is that life is hard. Trials are tough. Though you wanted holiness, though you wanted Christ, though you started running, you fell down. And if you're not down on the ground, someone else is that you love and you need to help them to run again. The picture is the runner who has drooping hands. You're weak in your hands. You you don't want to push up off the pavement. You're down. Your knees are weak or literally paralyzed is the original language. You're paralyzed. Perhaps you're paralyzed in fear. You don't want to do anything. I know for me in the past week or so, I have felt less energetic, less motivated at times keep going. My routine has stopped. My, my sort of mile markers are in a fog. We got to get up. We got to run. You can't stay paralyzed. It's not okay. You can't give up. Walking away from your relationship with Christ in trial is an error. It's a bad move. The most important relationship you have in your life is your relationship to Christ. So staying connected, staying receptive to what God is doing in your life is of paramount importance. You don't want to leave God. Ultimately, people who leave God are people who never had God. So don't be someone who leaves God. It's like Revelation where it says those who are unsaved, those who are not overcoming, they take a mark on their hand, the mark of the beast. Whatever that is or whatever that turns out to be, I'm really not ever going to put a mark on my hand. I just can't do it because I don't want to be associated with anything that looks apostate. This is warning Christians about not being like those kinds of people. Don't be someone who stays down, but be someone who gets up and runs You are avoiding the weariness and faint-heartedness that overcomes Christians. Verse 3, it happens, but we have to recover from that. Consider him, verse 3 says, who endured from sinners such hostility. What kind of pressure did Jesus endure from sinners and the sin on his shoulders against himself? Consider that so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's the race metaphor. We can't stop. We have to strengthen ourselves. Literally, the word means to rebuild yourself. That's the word lift in verse 12, to rebuild yourself. Rebuild yourself in the word of God. Get back on track. Go down the path. What does it mean if you stay down? You actually will warp your Christian life. It's been said that if you're, you know, behind the steering wheel of a ship, if it's turned one degree different than the regular course that you were scheduled to go over a long period of time, your drift will be incredibly wide. You'll end up completely in a different direction 
than you had intended to be going. Just one tick of the wheel. One little shift. What's wrong in your life that you need to get right so that you can strengthen, so that you can get up? The idea is that movement in the Christian life and in this physical metaphor, movement actually helps your body to correct Look at it in verse 13. Make straight paths of your feet. Get going down the path again with your feet. Start moving so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. You got to get moving so that you don't get warped, so that something that's broken doesn't grow back broken. You don't want the bones to calcify. You want them to be cast in the right Direction, just like a cast on an arm where it's set with a bone first has to be set so they can heal back and heal back even stronger. If you don't set the bone, if you don't get your feet right, if you don't get moving, you'll warp as you exist. Thought of earlier this week of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great English and Welsh preacher of the 1900s. And he was a medical doctor and he wrote the book Spiritual Depression. And he would say that we have to take hold of ourselves. We got to shake awake. And that's the command here. Second, not only do we have to run again, we have to reconcile sins. We have to deal with our baggage. It's been said that the Christian life is about keeping short sin accounts. Keeping short sin accounts. Short sin accounts with the Lord. We confess our sins regularly, and we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? We know that. We know that. We need to also reconcile sins with others, ways that we have done wrong, ways that we have hurt people, ways that we know in our heart of hearts we need to make right within the body. That's what verse 14 begins with, strive for peace with Everyone, everyone, this is all of the body of Christ. Strive for peace. Strive for reconciliation with everyone and for the holiness. That's the reconciliation. That's God working in our lives without which no one will see the Lord. Why is this being brought up? Well, God disciplines the ones he loves. God might be chastening you in a way that is bringing up an unreconciled relationship that you now know you need to repair, something you need to get right, a phone call you need to make, a text that you need to send because repair needs to take place within the body of Christ. Pressure on bubbles up things to the surface that we need to deal with. It's striving for peace. And we can't always target God's motivations for why he's allowing trials in our lives. To do that, as I said last week, is really futile. But at the same time, in the same breath, we also need to recognize that the Holy Spirit will lay scripture on our hearts, will bring us to the word of God, will bring the word of God to bear in our lives, and suddenly something will be made clear where we have to deal with that, where we have to obey Think of David's sin. He committed adultery, committed murder, allowing troops to kill someone intentionally. He lived a lie in leadership. And over a year's time, his body was wasting away. Psalm 32 said as much. It said basically that his body was weakened because of his sin. It says explicitly that his body and the way that he felt actually felt like a moaning, dying animal. It's the picture of Psalm 32 before Nathan the prophet confronted him. 
In his testimony, David's verses 3 and 3 through 5 of Psalm 32, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We have to repent. We have to strive for peace. The peace of God which surpasses comprehension even in our own lives before the Lord. And then we need to strive for peace with those in the body of Christ, everyone. Now, is that guaranteed that as you reach out that people will reconcile back with you? No, there's no guarantee of that. There isn't. Romans twelve eighteen says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What depends on us is the command to be obeyed, not the response that will follow. But this is holiness. What's at stake if you harden your heart to a verse like this and say, I don't need to reconcile with people? Matthew 6, in the context of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus said we are to pray like he did. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, forgive us all the stuff that we would owe you if we could pay you back for the sins that we've committed against your holiness, which we can never pay. Jesus had to pay for that on the cross. But forgive us our debts. Let those debts go. As we then look at others and we release debts of others. That's a forgiving heart. That's a pursuing peace heart. It's a heart that pursues peace, releases the debt. If you don't forgive people, what happens? Verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying in stark fashion is if your heart is hard towards the Lord, you're not going to forgive other people. And if your heart is hard towards the Lord and you're not forgiving other people, then you aren't going to be someone who should assume you're going to be forgiven of your sins. It's not a condition in terms of you do it and then God does it. It's speaking in terms of your heart condition, unearthing why you are not being forgiven. You're not being forgiven because you're not someone who is forgiving. And you're not forgiving because God has not first softened your heart to forgive. So how do you get the soft heart to forgive? You repent of your own sins. You trust God. God gives you a new heart. And out of the overflow of that new heart, you want to forgive. That's why Jesus said to the rich young ruler when he said, what can I do to receive eternal life? He said, sell everything. What was Jesus doing? He wasn't setting up a cause and effect there saying, sell and then you'll be forgiven. He was saying, you don't want to sell everything. You're clinging to everything that you have. And so it's unearthing the fact that you aren't soft to receive eternal life. If we won't forgive, if we won't pursue peace with others, then we should not assume that we have been given the forgiveness and eternal life. That's what's at stake. We run, we get up, and we reconcile. We do. We strive for for peace with everyone and for the holiness. Look at this. Without which no one will see the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If your heart is pure, if you're a forgiver, if you're a peacemaker, you're someone who is enjoying this holiness 
And you're going to see the Lord. If you're hard-hearted, you're unwilling to forgive, if you're in a lost state, you can't assume that you're going to see the Lord. Heaven is at stake. Heaven is at stake. Well, thirdly, we run again, we reconcile, and verse 15 says we have regard for others. Running from compromise looks like getting up, running again, reconciling with others, and having regard for others. If you don't care about people, you are headed towards compromise. Isolation, depression, perceived isolation from the accountability of God, running and hiding, living duplicitously. This is not someone who has a heart for others. This is a person who is self-focused and introspective. Having a heart for others is the idea that you know somebody who's sliding. You know somebody who's still on the pavement. You know somebody who's hard-hearted and unwilling to forgive people. Verse 15, it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What does that mean? See to it is the word where we get the word episkopos or bishop or overseer. We're literally overseers of each other. We're seeing to each other's spiritual lives. There's the grace of God in people's lives where they're living by grace. They've been saved by grace and they're running by grace. And then there's people who just appear to you to be falling short of the grace of God. They can't get there from here. Their hearts aren't soft. They're not in the grace of God. They don't care about the holiness of God. They don't care about Christ under pressure. They don't see pressure as their heavenly father's discipline in their lives for their good. They don't get it. And so we're supposed to oversee people. We're supposed to help people who are in this spiritual state, sad spiritual state. It's the discipline that needs to break them, but God through us can encourage them to be softened. Look at Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that no one that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have an exhortation job just by talking about the Lord, just by opening the Bible together, just by witnessing to someone, just by asking someone a question about how they're doing spiritually. We're exhorting one another. We're coming alongside one another as bishops, as overseers of people's lives to help people out of their quagmire, to help people to loose themselves from being entangled by the deceitfulness of their own hearts and sin. Hebrews 10, 24, maybe more positively says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We stir the pot in each other's lives. We help people who appear to be lacking grace. What happens when someone is unwilling to be helped? Well, it actually corrupts the church. It says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it may become defiled. The word root of bitterness in this application often is taken as a hard-hearted state. And that's true. I mean, and roots are hard. If you've ever stubbed your toe on a root, you remember that. If you've ever tried to chop a root up with an axe and gotten nowhere quickly, you understand the strength of a root. If you've ever pulled a root up and suddenly you thought it was this long and it's like, you know, 20 yards long or something, just crazy. It's amazing to think about the root system and the depth and the strength of roots. And so it's a powerful word picture. But the idea of the root here is more talking about the fruit of the root than the root itself. What do I mean by that? If you have a corrupted root, it will yield poisonous fruit, fruit that's bitter. 
So it's not just talking about being left in a bitter state. This is talking about someone who is bitter in their heart. They're hard-hearted, but they're in the church as this bitter root that's creating divisive fruit. That's the point of this text. You don't leave people alone just for their own spiritual sake, but you go after people because we need a grace-filled church. Somebody who is graceless in the church, who has a root of bitterness, will spring up and cause trouble. They'll cause trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Do you see that? Many become lifeless. Many are hurt when they're left to their own guilty influence. Deuteronomy 29, 18 is where this whole verse comes from. You might turn over there. Uh, Moses was warning the children of Israel right before they went into the promised land. And he says, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. In other words, you're going into the promised land. If you're going in in a defiled way where you're worshiping false gods, false teaching, beware lest there be any or be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. It's the same idea. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If there's, listen to 1 Corinthians twelve twenty five. it says uh, that there be no division in the body. This is the body life picture. Everybody has a function, a body part in the body. That there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. It's the same idea. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. What a better time than now to examine ourselves. Are we up and running? Examine ourselves. Are we reconciling with others? Examine ourselves. Do we have regard for others? Are we caring for each other? These are the applications of the Christian life Dealing with discipline, not giving up on God, not saying, God, I don't care. I'm just going to lay here. But instead saying, no, God, you're bringing pressure in my life to change my life, to make me like Christ, to equip me in sanctification and holiness on the journey to heaven. That's what this is all about. And so what does it look like? Again, getting up, strengthening. It looks like reconciling. And it looks like having regard for others. And then finally, resisting compromise. Resisting compromise. This is verses 16 and 17. Resisting compromise. And this picks right up on two two, um, storylines or episodes from Genesis 25 and Genesis 27. This is about Esau's moral compromise. Remember Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's talking about God's plan where Jacob, though he was the heel-grabbing twin who grabbed Esau's leg, he was born second, but ended up getting the birthright. Named for this as heel-grabber, it means that Jacob was a cheat. But as Esau underwent the difficulty of Jacob and his conniving measures, instead of embracing the struggle... Similarly to Cain and Abel, instead of embracing the hardship, he allowed his heart to harden. He allowed himself to rebel. He let his flesh take over and ultimately lost his birthright and his blessing. That's what this is alluding to. Look at verse 16. It says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he 
desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, the stories that these verses allude to do not include Esau's sexual immorality. He did um, have foreign wives. He, he was that kind of immoral sinner. I think more importantly, the sin of sexual immorality is highlighted first here to say that when you give yourself over to your flesh at a level where you are involved in hard-hearted, unrepentant sexual sin, you are on a bad, bad road. This is to warn people of that state of hard-heartedness. You're on the ground. You thought you were a marathoner. You don't want to get up anymore. You just want to give over to that sin. And this particular sin is equated with Esau's compromise that we're going to read about. His compromise going away from God's plan, going away from God's blessing. His compromise got worse and worse. Giving up on God, staying on the pavement is a moral choice. And typically when people come to a point in their lifetime where they're so hard-hearted that they're never going to return, it's a series of choices that led them to that final state of hard-heartedness where you really think you want God and you're repenting superficially, but no repentance remains for you even in this lifetime. That's the danger of apostasy. That's the danger of staying down. That's the danger of ignoring this message from God's word. You, we have to run from compromise. Typically, a person that falls at this level, for that person, it was not a far fall. They had already fallen so far that it was just basically stepping off the final rung of the ladder. We see how these episodes tie together from Genesis 25 and 29. Listen as I read. It says, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in, came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. For his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? He's rationalizing. Esau said, or Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright, which shows the state of hard-heartedness. It's not just that Esau fell and chose his flesh to feed his flesh rather than to honor God's plan. It's that he became hard-hearted over it and despised it and got worse. Just as 27.32 picks up the second scene that's alluded to here. Jacob, as we know, under his mom's leadership, um, Rebecca, who was... Um, married to Isaac, Rebecca sent Jacob in with um, what was pictured as a kill, as if Esau was coming in to his aged father who was blind, he put fur in his arms and duped his father into giving him the blessing. And it's a covenant blessing. It was a meaningful blessing in the Old Testament that meant God was going to bless the lineage of Jacob. This is the difference between Jacob and Esau. This is Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's that God was blessing this line, not that line. That's what that means. So this is the after effect, and it is the cause and effect of Esau's sin. He had sold his birthright, and so then that led to him losing his father's blessing. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? 
And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate all, ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, meaning a cheat, meaning a heel grabber, meaning he deceived you? For he has cheated me of me these two times. Esau is not taking blame. He's hard hearted. He's despising what he did. He's rationalizing it. He's blame shifting. He says, he took away my birthright. Behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? This is a picture of standing before the Lord. Many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do many miracles? Didn't I call you Lord? Depart from me. I never knew you. This is the situation that's pictured here in the Old Testament that's fulfilled over and over again as people come before the Lord one after the other saying, is there not a blessing for me? Do I not have a birthright? Am I not your firstborn? Wasn't I called a Christian? What's happening here? What happens is Esau is at the point of no return. Verse 37, Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you, meaning Jacob. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. That's a picture of hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's too late. This is the time, if there ever was a time with a world pandemic to examine ourselves. Are you a Christian? Are there people who need to hear Christ and the gospel hope right now? We repent and we believe because the gospel is real. Jesus is real. God has our attention. We need to turn to him. We need to run from compromise and rely on him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, it makes no difference. He wrote a book called Temptation. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire of revenge, love of fame, power, greed, money. Finally, the strange desire of the beauty of the world or nature. You can love all those things. Joy in God is at that point extinguished in us when we give over to that kind of idolatry. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. Only desire for the creature is real. And the only reality at that point is the devil. Christian life is running a race. I was reminded, I'll just say this quickly, of a race that was called the Race of Disgrace. It was 1988. It was the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, Korea. And it was Carl Lewis, who was six foot two. I think he was 30 at the time. I'm not exactly sure. Very loquacious, very talkative, very self-assured versus Ben Johnson. Shorter, age 26. He had mastered a jump start off the block. And basically, I rewatched that race on YouTube because I remember watching it as a little kid in 88. Um, and, you know, Ben Johnson took off and smoked Carl Lewis. He's from Canada. All of Canada was celebrating. But ultimately, as you know, the end of the story 
Um, it was found out that he had metabolic use of metabolic steroids that were illegal steroids, and that disqualified him, became the race of disgrace where ultimately Ben Johnson had to give his medal to Carl Lewis. And even still, it was this tinge of what happened here and how is this even right? And we're trying to honor, you know, our... Um, you know, USA representative Carl Lewis, and he was honorable. He won many gold medals. But the the stain of disgrace from what Ben Johnson did lived on. And 30 years later, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, they wrote an article. It was published two years ago on this. They're still thinking about it. It's the greatest rivalry of North America um, in the last two generations. It played out in 10 seconds. And we're still talking about this. The race was all of that for Canadians and all the more nauseating because it became so beautifully. It began so beautifully. Johnson's win was the best sporting moment we can imagine. The author of this was recalling how he jumped up off the couch and did a, a you know, sort of a do do with his mom because of what Ben Johnson had achieved. Listen to what Johnson said um, as he was... He was interviewed, and this is what he said 30 years later. He said, I lied. I lied and was ashamed for my family. This was actually him. It was a quote from um, right after the race. It was actually him owning it. He said, I lied and I lied and I was ashamed for my family, my friends, other Canadian athletes. I was just a mess. He cheated. This public shame and deep hurt. The more current interview from this article was where Johnson was just saying, look, I'm trying to get past it. And I, you know, I'm focusing on family and not associated with that anymore. But the stain sometimes stays, doesn't it? Well, that's a failure of a race in this life. We dare not fail the race of eternal life. We can't earn eternal life. What we have to do is receive from the Lord the grace of the gospel and be a believer, first and foremost, and then run. And then reconcile our sins with others and with ourselves before the Lord. And we have to have regard for each other. You know someone who needs the gospel, who needs to be picked up, encouraged. Then we have to resist compromise. You're going to be faced with ultimate compromise moments, and you need to run away from them towards Christ. He's the answer. He's the right path. Accept hardship. Love God because he loves you, and that's why it's hard right now. He loves you. Let's grow together.